Now, some of you may have heard of a place called Garadrimma in County Westmeath, and it has, like many places in Ireland, its own share of troubles. It has its family breakdown and crisis pregnancy and the likes. But there are two things that are slightly less usual about Garadrimma. The first is that it doesn't exist. It's a fictional place that exists only in writing. And the second is that all of those 21st century problems like family breakdown and crisis pregnancy were all described in 1918. They were themes in a book called The Valley of the Squinting Windows, which, as you might expect for a book that was dealing with some non-traditional family values, shall we say, was burned at the bonfires when it was published a little over 100 years ago. All of which sounds like a perfect topic for Hidden Histories with Donald Fallon. Donald, how are you? Good to be here, good to be here. We all know a valley of the squinting windows. I think a lot of us probably don't realise where the phrase came from. Yeah, it's a nice kind of colloquial term that's used all the time in Ireland, and it perfectly captures the twitching blinds and the curious window stairs of nosy neighbours. The wink and elbow language of delight. We all know these people. We live beside them up and down the island of Ireland in suburbia, in rural Ireland and everywhere in between. And there is an Irish obsession. Now, I know everyone all over the world is obsessed with gossip. I think there's a particular obsession in Ireland with a kind Mm. of gossip scandal Mm. and you know that great old Irish proverb a gossip's mouth is the devil's post bag (laughs) that is very true uh, in an Irish context so we have this wonderful book that deals with the subject of of gossip and and, and, and scandal in communities a century ago and I mean the point I want to make at the beginning of this is book burnings historically they bring to mind packed squares in Berlin Mm. in 1937 you know this happens in Ireland in 1918 and it's an international scandal when it happens our own little Fahrenheit 451 moment Uh, this book propels a very young and very unknown writer into a complete storm to attempt to capture a gossiping community in literary form is kind of difficult and in 1918 this author, Brinsley McNamara, great name, real name, Mm. John Weldon, attempted to do just that. And I mean, the story of the response to this book is remarkable because it is one of the worst examples of book burning in Irish history. Now, Brinsley McNamara was born John Weldon, September 1890. He lived a great life, very colourful life, uh, an accomplished actor at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, published a number of plays and novels. No one really remembers any of that now, really. You know, he's forever associated with this one novel, owing to the tremendous and kind of the immediate uh, fallout that it generated. Uh, So what then is so ultimately scandalous that's at the heart of this that caused people to be so outraged? If you pick up the local paper on the 8th of June, 1918, down in Mead, the Mead Chronicle. A fine publication. A fine publication. Everyone should buy two copies. The readers (laughs) are informed that an extraordinary incident has occurred in Delvin where a meeting of protests has been held against the publication of a novel by Mr. John J. Weldon entitled The Valley of the Squinting Windows. The novel is supposed to represent life in a rural village in County Mead. Correction, Delvin is actually in Westmead, but I'm going to just yes, take their word for it. I, yes. I think that's why the Chronicle was having a go, because they were like, this is actually Westmead, and let's have a go. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. The Continue. author is the son of James Weldon, national teacher, and he has been suspected of being part author of the book. As a result, the school has been left practically without a pupil. The book implicated parishioners, respectable people. Feeling has been running very high. The school is under police protection, as is also the teacher. So we have this book which just shocks this rural Irish community. Even though the village is fictional, mm. they recognise themselves, they recognise the topography of their own their own lives uh, within it. And not only do they go to war on the altar of the book, they boycott his father and they boycott anything to do with, with, with the family. So this made its way very quickly into the national press. So this family were being boycotted was extraordinary. And then quickly received international attention uh, as well. And the novel is arguably, you know, deeply important in the sense that it paved the way 
for a lot of other novels that are set in kind of awkward rural Irish communities. So take something like Edna O'Brien, The Country Girls. Mm. Could books like that have happened? Without this, I don't know. But the response to this was just extraordinary. So if he was an adherent, uh, Mr. Brinsley or John Weldon or whatever name he was going by, if he was an adherent to the idea of writing about what you know, uh, <laughs> he didn't describe the locals in the nicest terms. He didn't. The novel is scandalous. I mean, we have a young woman who's called a woman of shame. Her home is described by a local priest as an abode of lust. And the village, you know, has such a beautiful non script name that in essence uh, it could have been anywhere it's a town where everyone is obsessed with the private lives of everyone around them and everyone wants everyone around them to fail but there's a local woman <laughs> Nan Byrne and we're so told Irish. You know, it's so Irish isn't it it's like killing the scully, you know. We're told this woman had a relationship with a local man 20 years before the events of the book. She wanted to marry this man for his wealth. She fell pregnant. He refused to marry her. She's a miscarriage. And the baby's buried uh, in a garden. And in the aftermath of this, this woman, Nan Byrne, emigrates to England. But she comes back to the town years later with a new man who she's married there. And the village essentially rejoices, you know, in the gossip about her past, informing her new husband of this, like, scandalous tale of everything that's okay. that's gone on with this woman. And there's a whole host of inter personal scandals in it. I mean, her son, John, is training for the priesthood. He carries out an act of murder. It's a shocking stuff. And, you know, the language used in describing the church in it is amazing. Talking about the local church, it's described as, quote, the place where, on Sunday next, mean people would smirk in satisfaction as they sat listening in all their lack of charity and fullness of pride. All right, I'm sold. I'm sold on this. <laughs> this all, is really good. We all see, we all see familiar things in this. You yeah, know? Um, but the, it wasn't just Nan Byrne, though, that got, that got the, uh, the, the wicked end of his pen, though. Oh, the, the publican's wife is described in it beautifully as the hardest woman in the town. Her childishness, her childlessness made her so. She was beginning to grow stale and withered and anything in the nature of love and marriage with their possible results was to her a constant source of affliction and annoyance. So you might be annoyed, you know, if you could identify yourself yeah. uh, in that. And mm. sadly for him, the people of Delvin did recognise themselves in this fictional village. So truth is stranger than fiction. Apparently the book does appear to be based on real events uh, and real scandal. And it was too much locally. And the condemnation's great. He's described as a cynical young man who pillared his neighbours in a bitter first novel off on charity. Uh, to punish him is one thing. But the way they go after his father, you know, boycotting the father's school, mm. which essentially collapses. People were drawing their children uh, en masse. The local priest stands up and condemns and bans uh, the novel locally. It's like contraband. And then there's this incredible spectacle. And I suppose it's only as the 20th century went on, we'd understand how shocking it was to watch this happen. Mm. But the spectacle of books literally burning uh, in an Irish village. How much of the difficulties that the book encountered were a question of timing? It's kind of a romantic time in Ireland. You know, it's in 1918, it's two years after the rising and Eamon Maher wrote a lovely piece on this in, in the Irish Times last year for the, for the centenary. He, may, he said that maybe, you know, the novel's pitless portrayal of provincial Ireland with its hypocrisy, backbiting and violence might well have been more warmly received than it had appeared prior to 1916. But the mood of the country in the wake of the rising was not receptive to such an unflattering picture of Irish moors, whether authentic or not. So basically, they just didn't want to be talked down. I think so, I think so. And the Irish Times newspaper, which was always presented very much as a liberal voice of reason, the Dublin voice of reason, the Irish Times, they come out against the book as well and they say, it's not a book which any Irishman can read with honest pride and we gladly close it and hope never to open it again. <laughs> wow. Which is about as bad a book review as you yeah. can get uh, in the Irish Times. Yeah, God, you wouldn't get very much out of that one in these days if you were getting a, a two out of five <laughs> in the review pages. Um, but the ironic thing about all of this, and I mentioned that the timing, that it was hardly the first no. negative depiction of Irish rural life. No, but, but what was, I suppose what was following on here in a tradition was there had been earlier depictions of Irish rural life and the problems of, of Irish society in general. 
and it ended in riots. I mean, you had the playboy of the Western world in the Abbey Theatre uh, in 1907. That's condemned. Sinn Féin president Arthur Griffith says that play is a vile and inhumane story told in the foulest language we've ever listened to on a public platform. And when the Abbey bring it to New York, they go, oh, sure, look, the Americans must be ready for it, if not the Irish. The cast are pelted on stage with potatoes and stink bombs <laughs> fill the air in this Broadway theatre. So there's a lesson, you know, in, in the fallout from the Playboy of the Western mm. World in 1907. Irish audience don't want nuance in their depictions of rural Irish life. And one writer puts it very beautifully. He says, they insisted that the Irish were not by nature a violent people. And on the second night of the play, they stormed the stage and rushed the actors to prove their point. It's remarkable that so much of, of what we laud about art now is how sometimes it can be a little bit more brutal about reflecting life mm. as it is. And yet, mm. 100 years ago, they were not having they that were not having it. Um, who takes the blame? That's the great question. It. Who whips up this frenzy in, in in the country in these years? Who was responsible for all of this anger? It falls on the shoulders of people like the Irish Vigilance Association who were founded in 1911 and spread into every part of the country. And they really showed people the way, you know, when it, when it came to, to, to book burning. They waged a war on news agents selling what they regarded as filth. And, you know, in the words of one priest, he justified the way that they took English magazines out of newsagents in Dublin and literally burnt them in a pile on the street. And he said certain measures had to be resorted to to show the people that they were that, to show that the people were behind our movement. There are only two alternatives in stamping out an evil. There's law and there's terrorism. And we have to fall back on terrorism. So when your local parish priest is saying it's okay to walk into a newsagent's, take out the English magazines with the pictures of girls in them and burn them in the street, that creates an atmosphere in which people feel it's relatively normal to set fire to books. Uh, and despite all of that and the amount of copies of it that were burnt at the time, uh, the book has still remained around. I you think st- still can't get hold of it. It's probably remained around as a cultural curiosity. You know, people want to read books that other people burn because you, you want to know why they were burnt. You know, And while it's not a brilliant work, it has remained on the shelves. Uh, and Padre O'Donnell, who was a great Irish writer of the 20th century, uh, he defended it very beautifully. He said that a novel that involves itself in its village, as this one does, will always create community excitement. He says, Brisley McNamara did not choose to go into conflict with his own village. He did, however, set out to challenge the idealised view of themselves from mm. which Irish people seemed to him to suffer. He felt that the, the he felt those were days when people might behave better if they were cut down uh, to size. Mission accomplished, sort mission of. Accomplished, <laughs> right? He cut everyone down to size. Yeah. But, you know, this year we celebrate One, one City, One Book is Edna O'Brien. Mm. We talked about that recently. So we should remember, you know, there are people before Edna O'Brien, like McNamara and, and Singe, who were brave enough to write kind of critically about social issues uh, in rural Ireland and what went on behind those twitching currents. It's fascinating stuff. As ever, Donald, thanks a million. Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books, volume two. Please don't it. burn it. Buy a copy. No, please, please buy the book and then read it and recommend it to other people and buy two copies Actually, of the you know, Meath Chronicle. If you buy it, I don't care if you burn it. <laughs> well, Donald gets his royalties one way or another.